All right, Carla. So let's let's just play a hypothetical here. Let's let's pretend that we are setting up uh, a trust for our nieces and nephews because we don't have any kids. Yep. Um, and and we're planning on dying soon or whatever. What uh, what <laughs> kind of what kind of weird uh, rules do you want to put on them? Like what what do you want them to do? Well, how about just a big portrait of us? Like you need a life size picture of the two of us prominently placed in your home in order to ever get any money out. And, and if, if it ever goes away, you you can't get any more money out. Love it. And you know how some some portraits, the artist uses that technique where it looks like the eyes are following you. Oh, let's Wherever do it. Wherever you go, we're going to have that be a requirement in our portraits. Okay. I like it. We're watching. <laughs> we're watching. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. So before Squid Game came out, the number one show on Netflix, their most watched program ever was the steamy hit, the period piece Bridgerton, and season two has recently dropped, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Bridgerton, or should I say Bridgerton, is such a fun show. And I really enjoyed it. What did you think? Did you like it? I did. Yeah, I thought it was fun. It definitely, it's got a big ensemble cast, which always makes things fun. Sometimes it's hard to keep up with all the different personalities and storylines, but I liked it. I I have to admit, like, I know it was clear when they were going to do multiple seasons that the star of season one, uh, what's his name? Reggae Jean Page. Yeah. Okay. I know Plenty of people were excited to see him back on the show. I mean, come on. <laughs> I, I thought he was a fine actor. Yep. Yep. Me too. That's all I liked about him. Yeah. They I, I th- Didn't they do a sketch with him on Saturday Night Live where they, they kind of had somebody else kind of like fill in? Basically, someone was expecting to do a love scene with him and then there was somebody else who got to play the part and it was a little bit <laughs> a little disappointing for them. I imagine there are a lot of women in the world who would fight pretty hard to do a love scene with reggae john page well he didn't make the cut i guess his performance wasn't good enough in the eyes of the production company he did not make the cut he's not in season two but i think that's because his star is just very much on the rise like i'm sure that that guy's getting offers left and right so he just had bigger fish to fry than bridgerton season two but we do get to see phoebe denivore who was one of the other main stars of season one she hangs out a good bit in season two. So if you really liked her, which I also did, then you'll appreciate seeing her pop up quite a bit in season two. Carla, who is your favorite character on the show? I don't even have to think about this. It is definitely Eloise. I am a huge, huge fan of hers. She's just cute and spunky and smart and funny. I mean, what more could you want in a character? She's she's everything you want in one package. Hmm. So I'm a fan of Lady Danbury. I think she is just like so freaking cool. And I can never tell if she's angry and about to lash out or if she's like happy or being sneaky. Like she just ha- she just looks damn cool 100% <laughs> of the time. That's true. Lady Danbury is, yeah, she's up there for me. Yeah. She's pretty, she's pretty awesome. Maybe my second favorite would have to be Penelope. Um, when In the first season, I was kind of like, blech. I don't like her. She's boring. She's doing her lady whistle down thing, whatever. Oh, yeah. Spoiler alert, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you haven't seen any of Bridgerton, 
we're going to talk about the show and may reveal some plot points, especially relevant ones in season two. And what I just said about uh, Penelope being Lady Whistledown. Maybe. We don't know. We uh, Just pretend you're confused. <laughs> well, what I was going to say about Penelope is in season one, I wasn't digging her that much, but I think between season one and season two, you and I watched the show Dairy Girls. Yeah. And she was on that, and I just thought she was so much fun in it. And when watching season two, having seen some of her other acting work, it just it made her stand out even more. Yeah, the actress's name is Nicola Coughlin, and she she's great in Bridgerton. She really is. But in Dairy Girls, she's like off the charts hilarious. And I feel like she has an incredibly bright future. I think we're going to see a lot of awesome things out of Nicola Coughlin in the years to come. But yeah, Dairy Girls is going to be hard to top because she really set the bar high for herself. That is an excellent show. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely check it out. So Bridgerton, like I said, was the top show on Netflix for quite some time. But not everyone has Netflix. Not everyone has seen this. What is the show about? So it focuses on the Bridgerton family. There is a mother. She lost her husband um, before the series begins. So it's just her and her eight children, I think. So they name the kids in alphabetical order. So (laughs) we have, let me see if I can do them all. Anthony, Benedict, Colin, Daphne, Eloise, Francesca, Gregory, and Hyacinth. Pretty sure that's right. You got, you said words in alphabetical order, so I'm convinced. (laughs) So those are the eight Bridgerton children. And so the series is based on a series of books. And each book focuses on one of the Bridgerton kids and basically tells the love story of how they end up getting married because this is set in like Victorian slash Regency era England when that was kind of all people had to do was think about young people getting married. Yeah, the season just revolves around the whole, I guess, courting season, if you will, in their community. They have all these lavish balls, all of the all of the women who are hoping to get married go and walk out in front of the queen and she tries to identify who's the best and all of the men go to the balls and try to find their matches and court and do whatever people did back then. Yeah, that's pretty much the the plot in a nutshell. It's very much in the vein of Jane Austen kind of style, a little bit of a Downton Abbey feel to it, but it has kind of a unique spin. They make the whole thing feel much more modern than I think it actually would have in reality. So you have like a very diverse cast, whereas in reality, the upper crust of Regency era England would have been white across the board, but they've, you know, kind of spun this tale of why there were, there was much more diversity back then and it was much more accepted. And so it's, it's beautifully done and it's beautifully cast. We also have modern music being played in a classical style. So that's one of my favorite things about the show is trying to figure out, oh my gosh, what's that tune? It's like in the back (laughs) of my brain because they're playing it, you know, on violins and string instruments and you're trying to catch it from the modern version of it that you know in your head so season two featured a a really great Alanis Morissette song uh, played on strings which is great so yeah it's it has a very modern spin which isn't super historically accurate uh, by which I mean not historically accurate at all but it makes it a really fun watching experience yeah I think like I said, it was the number one show on Netflix for a long time. 
I don't know if season two will have similar ratings. I'm sure the timing, having it be kind of a a pandemic program that really came out with something new that was a little bit different, certainly that drew a larger audience. But I don't know. I'm sure season two has got a lot of viewers as well. Yeah, it's already been renewed for seasons three and four. So I think the books go all the way through eight because there's eight kids and they tell the story of each kid. But we know for sure we're at least going to get seasons three and four out of Netflix. So do we you, know? Do we know which kids they're going to be about? I do not. I'm not sure if that is official information yet or not. But I do not know which kids they're going to focus on. But you'd have to think they're going to do Colin pretty soon. Colin and Benedict would be my guesses. But that would just be going in alphabetical order. So I don't know. There may be room for Eloise in there. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, Eloise in season two, she has a little, a little fling fling going on. So we'll see what happens with that. Okay. So one of the main themes throughout the show um, is just the fabulous wealth that these people have and their desire to preserve it for their own future generations and the head of their households. And, you know, you want to find a match that some people are into a love match. Some people are into a match for convenience or for, you know, for fiscal purposes. But nonetheless, all the primary people in the show are doing all right for themselves. They're part of the upper crust of society. They're the wealthy folks. Yes. And you don't see a whole lot of the the help, the sports staff, the servants, the people who don't live in the um, super wealthy side of things. Yeah. So let me set the scene for our first clip here a little bit. So Daphne has recently married the Duke, um, played by Reggae John Page. And this is one of the few times that we get to see, as you were saying, these kind of like not super affluent folks. So obviously to become one of these upper class gentry people, most of them owned a heck of a lot of land. They leased it out to people, collected rents, collected part of the, you know, crop money that the land generated. And in our first clip, we're going to hear the Duke and Daphne speaking to one of the people who is renting the land from them and kind of complaining about the state of things. The harvest on the farm have been poor. With the rents being tripled, we are struggling to put food on the table. The rents tripled. My steward did not inform me. He hasn't shown his face since your father passed. God rest his grace's soul. He always gave his tenants what they needed, unlike some. Then it is a good thing indeed that we are back at Cliveden. I'm sure we can find a solution to these difficulties. And I thank you for bringing them to our attention. So as we were saying, this is like maybe the only time that we get any reference in either season one or season two to the fact that there are a lot of people living a far less affluent lifestyle. And sometimes those lifestyles come with a lot of difficulties. Well, we do learn in season two that there are folks who live on kind of like the other side of town. That's a little bit dangerous for Eloise and Penelope to be visiting. But yeah, we don't we don't get to know them particularly well very often. And this is one where they talk about their hardships much more directly than in general. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we see people who are not quite as affluent, especially in season two. But they're portrayed as like doing pretty fine in life. They don't wear pastel clothing like their entire environment is not covered in pink and blue confections but they seem to be doing just fine in life but this is the only time we hear reference to the fact that maybe things aren't always awesome for the people who are you know not living this incredible life of luxury that we see at the very top so 
How do you think reality measures up to the portrayal of life that we see in Bridgerton? Gosh, I mean, there have always been, not always, but for a very long time, there have been incredibly wealthy people who do so much better than the common average person. Um, maybe they're showing the wealthy people as slightly more opulent than is realistic, I would guess, would be my hunch. But the poor people, I'm sure that is real. The idea that sometimes the harvest isn't so great and if somebody's tripled the rents and nobody's doing anything about it and managing reality for those folks, yeah, it could be a really hard existence. Yeah, so what we see in Bridgerton just barely scratches the surface of how terrible things were in reality during the early 1800s, which is when Bridgerton is theoretically set this is commonly referred to as the Regency era of of England, and that is because the king at the time, I think he was King George III, and he was very ill. I was not actually able to rule much at all. So his son kind of ruled in proxy for him, or the fancy word for that that they used was regent. So he his being the regent led to the era being known as the Regency era. So during this period of England... Things were absolutely terrible for the low-class folks, which was the vast majority of the population. When we talk about the like upper class, we're talking about maybe 2 to 5% at most of the British population at the time. So the by far and away, the majority of people were living a very different existence than the one that we see portrayed in Bridgerton. So these the high-class people are a couple of percent, and then you have the rest of the folks... How much money were the rich people living on and making? What about the the poor commoners? Like how bad was it? So according to what I found online, you, what you might call like an average gentleman, so not like the richest of the rich, not somebody like Mr. Darcy in the Jane Austen novels, or maybe even somebody like the Duke that we see represented. No, in I would say the Duke and, and the, the Viscount, you know, the Bridgerton family, both of them are some of the wealthiest, right? Yeah, they're probably above average. They're not like a, quote, ordinary gentleman. But the average amount that a, quote, ordinary gentleman could be expected to bring in every year was somewhere in the range of like 2,000 pounds a year, which if we translate that to modern times and modern dollars, we would be talking about roughly $220,000 a year, which is an extremely comfortable amount to live on. If you can't live on $220,000 a year in the United States, you need That's to, on you. <laughs> that's for sure on you. You need to get some financial advice and help and maybe some therapy because that is it's more than enough. So yeah, we're talking about a very comfortable living. So what about the poor people? Not so comfortable, I'm guessing. Not so comfortable. So they could expect, this is for like maybe an average laborer, somewhere in the range of 39 pounds a year, which if we translate that to modern dollars, we're talking about $4,300 a year. So that is an astonishingly small amount of money to expect someone to live on. So I'm not going to go too deep into this, but I've got a few statistics on just how bad things were back then that I think are just mind-blowing and definitely not the kind of thing that you're going to see portrayed in the happy romance-filled world of Bridgerton. These are not pastel thoughts, huh? These are not pastel-covered thoughts. So 
one statistic that I saw talked about the fact that in some areas, people were so crammed in in their living conditions that you were talking about a thousand people per acre, which is just absolutely, I can't imagine living in that kind of conditions. It must have just been unfathomable. Not surprisingly, this led to rampant disease and the average life expectancy back then was just dramatically lower than what we see today. So if you're living this comfortable life where you have a heck of a lot less than a thousand peoples per acre that we see in Bridgerton, your life expectancy was, do you want to take a guess? Mm, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of, there's infant mortality was probably quite the problem. Uh, heck, pregnancy, you know, maternity statistics were probably really terrible just for the mothers. I'm going to guess like in the 50s, like low 50s. Yeah, it's actually 44. Even that, This is for the upper crust? Mm-hmm, that is the best you can hope for as an average life expectancy. Oof. Now, obviously, there were people who lived a lot longer yeah, than that. Yeah, the numbers are biased. There are a lot of people who yeah. survive way past then, but I'm sure it's a point where any infection can kill you and mm-hmm. you can die really easily from a lot of different stuff. Yeah, plus the medical doctors were just as apt to kill you as anything else, right? You, <laughs> you invite them over to make you better and they slice your arm open and have you bleeding into a bowl for a while. So that's going to help your conditional line. But yeah, so what about for the the lower class folks? The other 97% or so. Well, uh, gosh, I mean, I don't even know how to put a number on this. I I have to imagine it's just, you know, half, two thirds of it. I don't know. No, you're exactly right. It is half. The average life expectancy was 22 for the low class. And that's because we had, you know, rampant disease just spreading like wildfire in these terrible living conditions. Malnourished mothers, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Kids are born and, and don't make it more than a few weeks. Yep, that's exactly right. So I have a few statistics about just how awful life was for the young people. So Bridgerton is far less accurate than something like Oliver Twist. So there were these workhouses that a lot of children were just like dumped in because the parents couldn't afford to feed them. And the conditions in these places were just atrocious. There's not enough food to go around. These kids are worked to the bone. You have kids doing dangerous jobs like chimney sweeps. There's stories of these like terrible men lighting fires in the chimney to encourage the the little chimney work sweep. faster. Yeah, exactly. Get it to done. work faster. Seriously, <laughs> literally trying to like get it done before they burn to death. I mean, these are not happy facts, but this is actual things that happened in history. There were also these things called, quote, burial clubs, which was basically like life insurance that parents could buy on their children. So there are accounts of bill collectors coming around, knocking on doors, and the parents would say to the bill collectors, I just enrolled my kid in a burial club. Come back next week. He'll be gone then, and I will have collected money on his life, and I can pay you then. So this again, real things that happened, absolutely heart-wrenching decisions that these parents were faced with. And this is the kind of thing that doesn't make for great television, which is why you don't see it portrayed in shows like Bridgerton. But yeah, I mean, the storyline that we see in season two with Eloise kind of dipping her toes into these, quote, lower classes and consorting with this guy who works in a print shop like that's that's as far down the ladder as we get. Yeah, the guy at the print shop. He seemed well educated. He seemed like he had his life together. Things yeah. were probably hard and 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 very tricky. 
But they didn't sound that bad. Yeah, he looks pretty clean. He seems pretty happy. He looks well fed. <laughs> like, this is not a kid who had, you know, probably had someone lighting a fire under him so he would sweep the chimney faster when he was like four years old. So, so this is wealth inequality 200 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. What does it look like today? Right? I know we have the the uber wealthy, right? We've got Elon Musk and Bill Gates and, and people like that who've done extraordinarily well. I, mean, you, I guess you gave the numbers for what this money looks like in today's currency. Uh, the top 2% of earners today is around, uh, I believe it's around $200,000, right? Yeah, just a little over that. I think it's around two oh six. Okay. But the low-end earners should be doing better than $4,300 a year. So it's, it's, that's kind of coincidental that the the top couple of percentage points has, has kind of matched the modern-day number there. Um, so I would guess the, the lower end of folks have done a little bit better. We've ensured that the minimum wage is slightly better than that. But we also have more extremely wealthy people that are quite visible, like celebrities and business um, tycoons. The wealthiest people in the world are wealthier than the wealthiest people in the world. 200 years ago. 200 years ago, for sure. They did not have Elon Musk's back then. But the people at the bottom are doing much better than they were 200 years ago. So I know there's still so much room for improvement, especially with things like healthcare in the United States today. But compared to how things were 200 years ago, it has gotten dramatically better, which I think is a really optimistic thing to think about. And yes, it it hurts your heart to look back at those awful statistics about just how dreadful things were for so many people back then. But it does give me hope for the future that we're we've been on an upward trajectory and maybe... just just wait a couple hundred more years and maybe people will be able to afford the basics of life on minimum wage. Yeah. So so here in Colorado, the the minimum wage. I think is twelve fifty six an hour. So if we were to do the math on forty three hundred dollars a year, that would be assuming two thousand hours a year of work, that would be two dollars and fifteen cents an hour. So yeah, obviously things yeah, it has gotten a lot better. So. Okay. Well one of the things I thought that was interesting in this clip is the idea that no one has come by to talk to these tenants. You know, since the super the superintendent hasn't been there, the tr- rents tripled, they've been there in five years. Um but all these kind of wealthy landowners and, and people like the Duke and his family are kind of not in the loop on their business affairs. It's not th- like they have somebody to go run their businesses for them. And it's not really societally appropriate, I guess, for them to be in the midst of day-to-day business things. I think that's exactly right. We hear this reference to a, a steward that the Duke makes in this clip talking about Oh, my, my steward didn't inform me of this. So basically he's got kind of a... He's got a business manager. Yeah. yeah. He's hired someone to do all this quote-unquote grunt work for him. So I think that leads us into our next clip where we hear Penelope, one of your favorite characters, talking to Colin about finding purpose in life. I am certain you'll find your purpose one day. Everyone must eventually. Have you found yours? <laughs> of course not. But I imagine it to be something that animated and satisfying. The type of engine that speaks not to who I am, but rather who I aim to be. My purpose will challenge me to be brave and witty. My purpose will propel me far beyond the watchful glare of my mama by 
purpose, she'll set me free. What could possibly measure up to all that? <laughs> wow. So, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. So Colin and Penelope are talking about finding this purpose in life. And, you know, she, so she's kind of got a ruse going, right? She is Lady Whistledown. And it seems like she kind of has found her purpose in life, right? She's one of the few. She is writing this gossip paper and getting so much out of it, right? I think she feels really fulfilled by earning her own money and just having like found her voice and putting that out in the world. Yeah, she's contributing to the local culture in such a huge way, right? The queen goes and effectively has a bounty to go figure out who this gal is. She wants to know who Lady Whistledown, act, who, the, who the real voice of Lady Whistledown is. Yeah, so she is one of the lucky few, I think, who has found a way to do something really fulfilling that she very much enjoys. And it sounds like Colin hasn't found that yet. And most of the rest of the cast of Bridgerton, I would think, has not. Well, if you look at the whole Bridgerton family, right, you've got the, you know, in season one, the oldest son is not doing a whole lot. Like he's kind of having to be pushed to go kind of manage the family business to at least some degree. None of them are really contributing a whole lot to their communities, which is just, it's interesting how the, the, the way that work is sort of looked at and looked down upon is, is positioned in the show and in that time because, yeah, they are seeking a purpose. Like all of them are looking for a way to fill their time in a way that's enriching and rewarding, but none of them are thinking about business or, or anything like that. It's just beneath them. Yeah, so this is very much, I think, an accurate reflection of the attitude towards work back then. So the Duke could not have deigned to work on, you know, the details of running the the estate that he inherited. It just wasn't done. It was not proper for a gentleman or certainly a lady to do some kind of business pursuit or do anything to earn a living. So the highest class back in this era of England thought it was just flat out inappropriate to work. And then just below that, you had professionals like doctors and lawyers or solicitors um, who were like, okay, they're tolerated, you know, <laughs> like you're not really in the club. You have to work for a living and that's, you know... That's what it is. We're not excited about it. But, you know, it's cute that you found something that's kind of professional and sort of prestigious. I think the clergy is often the other main example of that. Like, eh, it's okay. You can do that. That's We'll pat you on the head and say that's all right. And then basically anything below that is seen as just like dirty, you know, like, oh, you have to work in a print shop for a living or you have to make dresses for a living or just like, oh, what a terrible way to live. So the attitude towards work back then was very much in that vein. It just was completely looked down on that anyone had to earn their living. So let's go back to what Penelope was talking about and her purpose. And she's not quite sure what it's going to be, but she's got some grand ambitions for what it will include. Do we... Do people think about their purpose today? And, and purpose maybe is a bit of a like a haughty word, right? I, I think it sounds a little bit overblown but do people spend enough time today thinking about what they want out of life and what they want to accomplish or is everybody in your opinion just living kind of 
with the inertia that they have at the moment and doing whatever's on their list for the next day and, and not really thinking big picture enough about what's going on. I think there's a lot of inertia and just getting through the day going on. We are so busy in our modern worlds that it's very hard to just kind of like force the brake into gear and say, I really want to think about what I want out of life and not just keep, you know, going through my endless to-do list that has new things added to it every single day. I do think that the pandemic caused a lot of people to do that, to pull that break in a way that they hadn't had a chance to before, or maybe they had the break thrust into gear for them in a way that they didn't even want. But I mean, we're seeing that now with this quote, great resignation, people who are making career changes, just doing huge pivots in life and trying to find more of this purpose. So I do think we're seeing a little bit more of that today. But overall, in modern society, I think it's so easy to fall victim to just falling into something, getting into a rhythm with that thing. And then it's really hard to make a big shift once you're in that mode and you have momentum going in one direction. Agreed. Yeah, I, I don't think many people take the time to do it. What I wonder is, when in your life should you be thinking about this sort of thing? I know when you're a kid and you're growing up deciding what you want to be and what you want out of life is the perfect time to do it. But I mean, should we put some in our calendars every uh, you know every April to think about this or, or what? I think it's the kind of thing that you should be evaluating all the time. And this is especially true for the people who don't love their jobs, which is so many folks today. So yeah, I think it's just something that has to be constantly refreshing in your brain. I actually think it would be a pretty great idea to schedule something so that you make sure, you know, not too many months or years go by before you have a little check-in with yourself and figure out whether you're on a path that's genuinely making you happy and that you will be happy to reflect back on when you're 90 years old and, you know, facing the end of your days. So we're... We have a lot of friends in the financial independence movement, people who want to retire early, people, even if you're not retiring early. I think this is a, a particularly important time to think about um, your purpose and what you want out of life because there's so many folks who retire in their 60s and their purpose is to watch reruns of their favorite television program and not really do much in their health and their happiness really suffers as a result of it. And I think, I don't know, it's just an important time for people to be reflective on that because hopefully they're not retiring from something, but they're excited to retire to something. It couldn't be any more important. This makes me think of the the Shawshank Redemption, right? Do you remember there's a character named Brooks who has been in prison for the vast majority of his life, maybe, I don't know, three, four decades. And when he's maybe in his seventies or so, he gets released and he goes out into the world and he just is overwhelmed by how much things have changed. He's overwhelmed by the freedom that he has. He's overwhelmed by having to meet new people and make new routines. And poor, sweet, wonderful Brooks ends up taking his own life in the movie. And it's just this incredibly poignant moment that has always really spoken to me um, when I think about it in the context of work. You know, we don't want to be so institutionalized, that's the word that they use in the movie, that we can't break free 
of our routine and find another one, one that we maybe like even better. At my old law firm, there was a man who came into the office every single day. He was, I think, into his mid-90s, and I don't think he was actually doing any legal work anymore. His mental capacity for that had, had passed a while ago, but he just liked to be there and he liked to, you know, say hi to the people that he saw every day and like read some, you know, materials, maybe related to legality, maybe not, but he just had that routine. And maybe that's a really inspiring story that he'd found something he loved so much that he could never leave it behind. On the other hand, maybe it's kind of a sad story that he could never break free and do something different that brought him fulfillment in a, a completely new way. So I think that risk of being, quote, institutionalized is extremely real, and it's something that people should be thinking about constantly, especially when they're around retirement age, whether that's in your 30s, if you're part of the FIRE movement, their 40s, or you know your 60s or 70s if you're more traditional retirement. So Penelope is one of the Featheringtons, and she's thinking about her purpose. I'm not sure the rest of the Featherington family shares the same set of values and, and outlook for what the future should hold. Yeah, that's for sure. Penelope is by far the best Featherington, in my opinion. The rest of them are presented as either just very silly, empty-headed people or conniving people. Well, let's play our next clip where we get to learn a little bit more about what's going on in their family. Lord Cowper, what business did he have with you? He wishes to invest in the mines. Several of them do. Bored gentlemen with too much time and money on their hands. Take it. The mines are worthless. There are no rubies to be found. And how are they to know the difference? Are they to board a ship to the Americas? <laughs> You're serious? The future of this family hangs in the balance, my lord. I have never been more serious in my life. Yeah, so this is definitely a spoiler here in the, the series, but in, episode, in season two, the Featheringtons put on this ruse, right? They go try to recruit people to buy into these ruby mines that Lord Featherington the new Lord Featherington, uh, has in Georgia that are totally worthless, right? There's no precious stones there to be found, and he knows it. Uh, Lady Featherington's like, we need the money, yo. Go make this happen. And he gives in, and, and they start trying to rip people off. It's, it's pretty despicable. It is, and it just makes me think about how helpless people were during this era when it came to what to do with their money. If you were going to invest in something like this, I mean, Lady Featherington in that clip is exactly right. What are they going to do? Board a ship to the Americas? No, most people didn't have any desire to do that. It was a dangerous journey to make. It was a huge investment of time and money to go all that way. So it just was completely unrealistic to expect anybody to make that kind of commitment before they invested in something. I don't know what you would do back then. There was no Securities and Exchange Commission to go tell you and, and regulate what's going on with all these different businesses. I don't know how you, I guess you're just investing in stuff based on the the trustworthiness of the people who've told you about it. I mean, pretty much. What the, else were you going to do? It'd be a long time till you could Google it. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. So we are so lucky to live in the modern age that we live in where investing in something is a much safer bet than it was back then. So today, if you wanted to invest in a company, 
There are all kinds of resources where you can get information about what's going on with that company, what kind of returns you can likely expect. Of course, no one has a crystal ball. No one can ever tell you definitively what kind of return on your investment you're going to get no matter what you're investing in. But you can make far more educated guesses today. Yeah, I was going to say, you have to, there are public filing requirements of corporations. There's a lot of information out there, um, which is really, really great. Although I do think of the Enrons of the world where just because there's information that has been published about their you know, financial wherewithal doesn't mean that it's accurate or valid or that there isn't somebody manipulating and cooking the books behind the scenes that hasn't been caught yet. Yeah. So I guess this happened so long ago, maybe we have to say, I feel like Enron was not that long ago, but we're getting old. So yeah, Enron was a huge, um, like energy company, oil company mainly, I think in Texas, I think they were based in Houston and they were reporting just these awesome astronomical returns, like quarter after quarter, their earnings reports were just stellar. And they attracted so many people to invest with them because those reports were so great. Turns out, not so much. And when push came to shove, the company turned out to be actually bankrupt. So I'm paraphrasing here. I'm sure I'm getting some of the details wrong. But Enron went belly up, and a lot of people who had invested heavily in the company also went belly up. They lost all of their investments. A lot of people lost their life savings. A lot of people who work there like had 100% of their retirement savings mm-hmm. in Enron. Yeah. The top people who were in on the scheme of cooking the books went to prison. It was a whole big scandal. There's a really great book on it called The Smartest Guys in the Room, which I would highly recommend if you're interested in it. I haven't read it in ages, but I remember it being a really good book. So... There are schemes like that, but I will say every time a scandal like that happens, I feel like the the screws tighten just a little bit and there are more regulations that come into being to make it a little bit harder for schemes like that to happen. So post Enron, things are probably a little safer to invest in than they were. But the main thing that I wanted to talk about and advise people on is index fund investing because... Index fund investing can protect you from exactly that kind of devastating loss that we were talking about. So do you want to tell people what index funds are and why we are such big fans? Well, I think we should probably start with just what a mutual fund is. And I think the idea that you're talking about in general is diversification and then index funds are a particular version of that. So if you invest all your money in Lord Featherington's fake ruby mines, you're going to be screwed, right? You're not going to get any return from that. You're never going to see your initial investment back. It's just gone. And if you invest in one company, you have all your eggs in that one basket, right? If you diversify and you put your money in a bunch of different companies, well, some of them will do well, some of them won't, and you will be protected by the diversification that you have. And that's really what exists in typical mutual funds, right? For a long, long time, people have recognized that this is it's hazardous to have all your money in one place and splitting it up and spreading it out across multiple different similar or you know different industries, however you want to do it, can be a really productive way to, to manage your risk and ensure that you do get better returns on average than you would by, by betting and going all in on a single company. The challenge is that 
nobody can predict the future. And so for a long time, these mutually fun, mutual funds were managed by people who were kind of insiders into the business world, who people sort of thought of as savants and, and people who understood where money would go and, and what companies to invest in and which one to pull out of and how to get in at the right time. And they would manage your, this pool of uh, companies that you were invested in in this fund and buy and sell and do all these activities. Well, turns out some people did some studies and concluded that these these funds really weren't that great. They, they sometimes beat the averages that you would see if you just bought into everything. If you just looked at the market in total, occasionally those mutual funds would do better and occasionally they do substantially worse. And you'd have to pay a fee to be a part of their program for them to manage their mon- your money for you. Um, and so there are new products that ex- have existed for the last, I don't know, like four decades or so, roughly. Sounds about right. Uh, called index funds, where instead of having somebody who's your savant money manager, you know, fund person, you just kind of have this automated process where you buy every company. You buy a slice of each individual company in whatever sector you want your index fund to represent. And as companies blossom and reach whatever minimum, if you want like the top 500 companies in a category, if somebody gets successful and falls into, makes their way to the top 500, you buy a piece, a piece of, of a slice, a piece, uh, <laughs> you buy a slice of their company and then whatever company fell out gets sold. And, and basically it's, it's automatically repl- replenishing and rebalancing and ensuring that you have the diversified investment that you want without a whole bunch of management fees and costs and you get the performance of the market at large, it's easy. And if there's an in-run in your portfolio, it's a tiny share of your portfolio and you're not gonna just lose it all. Lord Featherington won't take all your money. Yeah, and if, I mean, it's really not a matter of if, it's when one of the companies that you've invested in turns out to be like a Lord Featherington type of company or in more, more modern terms, an Enron, that company will just sink to the bottom and fall out of your portfolio while you're tucked in bed at night, you know, having sweet dreams of your financial success in the future. That company is just going to be naturally swept out of your portfolio. And whatever company was like just on the cusp of the bottom is now going to be swept in. And now you'll have another company that you're invested in that has a chance to really thrive and do great and may end up at the top of your portfolio someday. So it's it's an automated way to invest. Most index funds charge an extremely small fee for the privilege of investing with them. So I think Vanguard is what you and I have chosen to invest in. Vanguard typically charges less than 0.1% of the total amount you have invested for the privilege of investing with them each year, which is a very small percent. If you were investing in an actively traded mutual fund that had a real human being at the helm making decisions, you could be looking at something like 2 to 3% taken out of your portfolio's value every year, which is a huge swing. So we are big fans of index funds and recommend it for that reason. Huge fan of index funds and big fan of just diversification in general. And, and it's not just stocks that you can invest in, right? If you wanted to if you wanted to get in on the real estate game and you didn't want to be a landlord and manage your own properties, there are real estate investment trusts that allow you to diversify. There are bond funds. There are you know other markets out there that you can get some sort of diversified portfolio 
that, you know, is generally indexed to that category or that is not super actively managed and has a low cost uh, of overhead, but gives you the opportunity to not just trust Lord Featherington. Yeah. So take advantage of the fact that you are living in these lovely modern times where you do not have to rely on the reputation of one shady dude and you can do a lot of research and diversify like crazy and save a lot of money by not paying a financial advisor in the process. All right. So if we rewind 200 years and go back to Bridgerton times, we can jump into our next clip because they don't have those modern conveniences and instead people are relying on marriages and inheritances and doing whatever they need to do to make sure that they don't fall in that lower portion of society. Where their life expectancy is 22. Yeah, yeah. You (laughs) want to make sure you stay in the upper crust. And so this next clip is at a big dinner. Uh, We have Anthony, the oldest son in the Bridgerton family. He is engaged to be married to Edwina Sharma, who uh, the queen had identified as that season's diamond. She was the the hot ticket that year who you'd, you'd certainly want to uh, try to pair up with because she had all the attributes of, of a, a lovely woman of nobility, I guess. Uh, but she and her family were a bit estranged from her grandparents. Uh, her mother had chosen a love marriage, not the, the marriage that uh, Edwina's grandparents had selected. And she moved to India with uh, this love match. And she moved to India with her love match. And and they had a wonderful family. Her husband since died. She raised her daughter and his daughter from a prior marriage. And they had come back to court for Edwina for this season. And things have gone very well for Edwina, but things are still pretty tense with the family. I was heartbroken indeed. But in time, I came to see that in your cruelty, you did us all a great service. I hardly think this a proper dinner conversation. I quite agree. Please, when you cast me out, what you did was set me free. Free to raise my daughters far from your constant judgment and craven demands that they should chase wealth and titles above all else. Well, you are a fine one to talk. You speak of scorning riches, and yet you have come crawling back to snatch at our fortune. Lady Dunbury is right. Perhaps nothing from you. Oh, you may not, but your daughter certainly does. Mama, the trust fund we have set up for her, the condition of which clearly states that she must marry a man of good English breeding to inherit. Oh, man. Good English breeding. That sounds like a dog. (laughs) Yeah, I think that was probably a pretty common way to talk about people back then. So Edwina is the the daughter who's getting married and you hear her say, Mama, is is this true? Right? She's she's totally caught off off guard by this because they haven't told her that she does stand to inherit a, a sizable fortune if she goes and has a marriage of of something that would meet the approval of her grandparents. Why? Why don't they tell her about this? I don't get it. I think it's purely a plot device. There's no reason in real life that you wouldn't want to let somebody know, hey, like there's a condition and a trust with your name on it. If you can marry someone of, quote, good English breeding, like a nice, I don't know. Spaniel? Yeah. <laughs> then, uh, then you'll inherit a lot of money. Now, we're not going to force you to marry anybody. We want you to be happy. But let's go to England and see if you find somebody who strikes your fancy. And if so, there's this added bonus if you get an inheritance. I just can't for the life of me imagine what, why they would have hidden that from her. It seems crazy to me. 
but I don't know. I mean, this is another one of those things where I'm like, good grief, I'm glad we live in modern times because, you know, there's, you don't have to rely on inheritance to make your own way in this world, right? You don't have to rely on making a, a good marriage match to make your way in this world. You can stand on your own two feet and earn a living. You're right. It's a plot device. There's no logical reason for them not to share it with her. Okay. So there's this trust that has these rules, right? She can only get the money if she marries, you know, a, a, a proper thoroughbred, yep. uh, whatever, right? Um, you went to law school. I believe you took some classes on rules for estates and trusts. Is this a thing? Like, can you actually do that? Does that... Can that really happen and drive your life? So as with everything in the legal world, the answer is it depends. But generally speaking, yeah, you can put some pretty wild clauses into a trust that say, you know, whoever the beneficiary of this trust is, you don't get a penny of this money unless you do X, Y, Z. So there are some limits for sure on what that X, Y, Z condition can be. So uh, obviously not like crimes and stuff. Yes, exactly. You cannot say... You inherit my money if you go murder the current president of the United States. Like, no one will force you to do that to inherit money. The money will belong to you, whether you murder the president or not. But there are some pretty crazy examples of requirements that have been put into trusts. So the most common one that has been held up in court is religious requirements. You can put a clause in that this person cannot inherit from you unless they marry someone of a specific faith or they themselves adhere to a specific faith. So that one seems pretty insane to me, but that is that is a real thing. You cannot require someone to marry a specific person. That's like a step too far for the courts. But you can like create a little box and say you must marry someone within this box. Now, I think it's just going to vary from state to state as to what will stand up, as to what kind of a box you can draw. Like, for example, if you wanted to require somebody to marry someone of a certain race, I don't know. There's cases that say you can require a religion. Does race really that far of a step away from that? I don't know. It's just seems abominable that anyone would try to do it. But I'm sure there's someone who would who would want to put that into their trust. Um, yeah, I mean, requiring someone to marry another person of a, a different gender I'm sure something like that could come up and could be challenged in court. Whether you would win or not, again, it's going to depend on the specific state that you're in. But yeah, generally speaking, it is pretty wild that people can put restrictions on inheriting money like that. All right, Carla. So let's let's just play a hypothetical here. Let's let's pretend that we are setting up uh, a trust for our nieces and nephews because we don't have any kids. Yep. Um, and, and we're planning on dying soon or whatever. What, uh, what <laughs> kind of, what kind of weird, uh, rules do you want to put on them? Like, what, what do you want them to do? I mean, the main requirement would be that they take excellent care of our beloved dog, Miles. That, okay. that would be my main thing. Mm, I don't know. You don't want to make them jump through some hoops? Let's make them build a shrine to Miles as well. Like a, a life-size statue of Miles that they you know, put in a prominent place in their living room. I'm going to make that a requirement. Ooh, yeah. How about just a big portrait of us? Like you need a life-size picture of the two of us prominently placed in your home in order to ever get any money out. And, and if, if it ever goes away, you you can't get any more money out. Love it. And you know how some, some portraits, 
the artist uses that technique where it looks like the eyes are following you. Oh, let's Wherever do it. Wherever you go, we're going to have that be a requirement in our portraits. Okay, I like it. We're watching. <laughs> we're watching. So Edwina's mom left behind this world of wealth. She decided that she didn't need that. She didn't need to stay with the Sheffields and could instead have a wonderful life in India with her husband, uh, her daughter, uh, her stepdaughter. Um, what are your thoughts about leaving behind a world of wealth like this, even in this time, especially in the time of the Bridgertons, but also today? What do you think about that? I think it's generally difficult for people to leave behind a world of wealth and privilege if that's what you've grown up in. But I also think it's extremely character building and can be a very positive thing for a lot of people to break out and do something that's all their own and that they feel, you know, really passionate about and committed to. I think it's it should be a rite of passage for children to grow up and, you know, leave the family nest and strike out on their own and make something of themselves in a way that they feel good about and that really belongs to them. I love that some of our most famous billionaires like Warren Buffett and I think Bill Gates, their intention is not to pass on the bulk of their wealth to their children, but instead to to donate it to causes that they believe in and give their children enough to ensure that their basic safety and needs are met, but not a whole lot more than that. Yeah, I mean, there are some famous examples of people who have shunned the family wealth and decided that they really wanted to find their own way in the world. Buddha really comes to mind, right? He was an actual person in history who, by all accounts, grew up as a prince, I believe, and had access to fabulous wealth. And when he realized that not everyone lived that way and that there was a whole world out there full of suffering and all kinds of other things that he had never experienced, he decided that he needed to experience the world for himself. And so he went out and did that. And um, Chris McCandless, who's featured... And the movie Into the Wild. Yeah, yeah, the one where he goes to Alaska, right? Mm-hmm. He grew up with a lot of wealth. His parents were extremely well-to-do people. And he probably never would have had to worry about money, but he just needed to break free of that. And I think his parents were pretty abusive, too, in addition. But he just wanted to, you know, kind of strike out on his own. So well, that, that didn't work out so well for him. It did not work out so well. I think at some point we'll do an episode on Into the Wild. But I think... At its core, it's an inspiring story of somebody deciding that they want to do something different and make their own way. That always is an inspiring story to me. But obviously there are smarter ways to do it than others. And I think Chris McCandless kind of went too far to the other end of the spectrum and ended up putting himself in real danger. But that's a story for another day. But I do love that we have these examples of people to look up to who have chosen to leave behind comfort and luxury in search of something that's more meaningful to them. So what do you think Edwina should do here? Should she, after this fight, go back to the Sheffields and say, hey, I'm, I am interested in your money? What should she do? So I, I mean, this is a time when a dowry is required and expected by most families. Yeah, I don't understand why Edwina's grandparents are talking about them like snatching at their wealth and, you know, you've come back here trying to be money-grabbing and grabbing our fortune. I mean, they're the ones who created the trust and put this requirement in. They also seem delighted to meet their granddaughter for the first time and, like, want to welcome her with open arms. And then all of a sudden they just, like, turn on a dime and they're like, 
Yeah, don't come snatching at our fortune. Yeah, I think it's just kind of manufactured drama yeah, that, that they, doesn't. They put the money out there, and their hope is that she marries someone of you know a, a spaniel. Yeah. <laughs> And she was in the process of doing so, and instead they they couldn't do anything but rip on their daughter, who had been estranged for so long. I don't know. I'm very curious to see if in in season three or season four, if if Edwina is still a part of the show, and if um, she is at court again and is part of the nobility, and there's a chance for her to, to get some of that family money. Yeah, I certainly don't see anything wrong with her taking the money if she genuinely finds someone of good English breeding that she really likes, loves, and wants to spend the rest of her life with, why not take the money from these like kind of crappy people and, you know, go build her own life with it? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And they certainly shouldn't begrudge her that. I mean, if they didn't want to do it, they should have just dissolved the trust. Like, it's, up, it's their money. They can do whatever they want with it. But if they're wanting to give it to her, then... Don't make her feel bad about it. Agreed. Well, I think that's about all we wanted to touch on for Bridgerton today. I hope you guys were able to learn some interesting money facts and lessons from this show set 200 plus years ago. Yeah, there's more to it than just the steaminess of the relationships in the Bridgerton family. Although the steaminess is kind of fun too. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, when you watch it, I hope you think about the reality that may have been lying under the surface of all these pretty pastel-colored things that we see in the Bridgerton universe because there was some pretty pretty yucky stuff going on behind the scenes and in real life. Times are tough, but times are, tough. Times are great now. <laughs> it's on an upward trend. That's I for feel sure. helpful. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed today's episode and uh, try not to marry any dogs and think about what kind of crazy conditions you'd put on your trust. Yeah. And if, if anybody wants to get a portrait of us, just let us know, reach out, leave a comment, and we'll see what we can do to make that happen for you. We'll work on it, guys. Catch you next time. Take care.